that when you ask the question of yourself, you know, are you at peace right now? We might think, you know, am I feeling good? Am I content with where I'm at internally? But we don't get to that internal contentment unless we first understand what peace means externally. And so when he says that we have this peace that's been secured by Jesus, he's envisioning what we see more in our day and age as relationships between different governing bodies or different heads of state. And so when two nations are in conflict with one another and they are not at peace with one another, they they usually then complicate things for one another. And so if our nation is at war with another nation, and so there is not peace, but you're someone who lives here, but you have a family member there, well, because our nations are at conflict with one another, your ability to just travel and visit someone you know or their ability to come here, all of a sudden, all of that becomes very, very complicated because the nations are not at peace. All kinds of barriers are then lifted up to punish each other for that reality. But when the conflict ends and there is a peace between those two nations, in that peace, there is now freedom of movement and access to the various groups of people. So historically, in recent times, we were, as a nation, not at peace with Cuba. And there were limitations on any American who wanted to go there. And now, in the lifting of those sanctions, there's a declaration on both parties to say there is a peace in that there is now freedom. The barriers of travel are going down. The barriers of doing business are going down. So if you want a vacation in Havana and experience a country that beforehand you would not have had access to, or you could have done it, but illegally, um, now you can do it. There's a peace that's been established. That's an external reality that then affects what we do. Now, if you have no interest in seeing Havana, you'll never go there, even though peace has been established. We're at peace with Canada. You might want to go there. You might not want to go there. But it it makes possible for you a new reality that is not controlled by how you feel in any given moment. It's true because it's true. It's true because the people in charge and the people with access to the power have said we're in a new relationship now we're not there's no conflict there are no more barriers there is open doors there is access to trade there is freedom to travel and so what paul is saying is that there is a peace that has been given to all of us that was secured by jesus that we as part of the kingdom of this world and under the authority of the god of this age which is satan that there was a conflict between that kingdom and God's kingdom. There was a battle between those two groups. And someone needed to bring about a resolution to that conflict because our access was limited. Our freedom to travel was not there. It didn't matter what we felt at any given moment. It didn't matter how sincere we were. And so he's saying the good news is that Jesus has provided peace. So Ephesians, he says it specifically. Jesus is our peace. Who has broken down the wall that was the barrier between us? And so because of who Jesus is and because of what he did, we have open access, freedom of travel. There is no one now who cannot come to the Father because of limited opportunities to do so. 
Christ has broken down whatever the barriers were through his obedience, through his death, through his resurrection, he has established peace. And through him, there is this freedom. And it's until we understand that external peace and that reality, until we get that first and know and really believe that that is true irrespective of whether we have a bad day today and we're just not feeling good. And so if you ask us if we feel really peaceful, we're like, I'm not feeling very peaceful right now. I'm pretty frustrated right now. But okay, you can have a bad day, but there's still peace. There is still, bless you, there is still access that you have that is outside of how you feel in any one moment or what gets you scared or not. And that's good news. It is good news to know that the peace that God provides to us is something that he had the full capability of doing. And so in providing it for us, no one can take that peace from you or that peace from me. We're not in the halls of power. We're not the ones who get to negotiate those deals in in the meetings. But the one who does... And the one who, when he makes a decision, can make it in a way that it's irrevocable, has said, the doors are wide open. You're free to come. There is access to the Father because of what Jesus has done. And so that's a peace that's been secured by him. But just like everything Jesus does, he, he wants that to be something that we now experience. And so for the Apostle Paul, who's writing this, he actually gives a, a, tells a, a long story in chapters 1 and 2 about how he needed to experience this in the church. So this peace is secured by Jesus for us, but then he wants us to experience it in our relationships with one another. So maybe you don't know Paul's backstory, bless you. Um, but he, he, he was someone opposed to the church. He was someone hostile to the church. He didn't want people to go to church. He, he disliked the church so much, he wanted to shut the church down. So Paul would have said, I'm in the camp that's opposed to the church. I'm at war with the church. I'm I'm in conflict with anyone who wants to be a part of this Jesus movement. And he was incredibly zealous for his perspective. So much so that he had a reputation that when he did convert and become a Christian, it was more than a decade before the church could fully receive him as one of their own. And he details that in chapter 1 and 2. He knew what his reputation was. Everyone knew him as Saul the persecutor. Everyone knew him as someone who hated the church. So if someone were to systematically come and try to shut our doors down and say, you're not allowed to have church, and they were to throw your child in prison or my child in prison because they came to church, and then a year later that person said, I've had a change of mind. I'd love to join the church. I just heard you say something about an honorary lifelong membership. I want to see if I can get in on that. Everyone would be suspicious. Wait a minute. You want to join the church. You're the person who's gone so far out of your way in anger and jealousy and hatred to harm us. And you think you can just change your mind and then all of a sudden you're a welcome member in the church? And so what Paul details is he, he, he knew that reality. And so though he converted to Christ, there was a prolonged period of time before everyone could fully believe that he genuinely was converted and therefore he should be received into the full membership of the church. So he says one of the first people that he talked to was Peter. 
and then after another period of time to James as well, and then to so, and it and then they had to observe his life and observe his ministry and say, because the very real possibility was that he would lie about being a convert just to get into the church so that he could find out more about the church so that he could undermine it from within. It's a totally legitimate reality. That's one of the question marks in the refugee crisis today. How many people are claiming now in Greece or other places that they've made to, conversion to Christianity as a way to ensure continued access to the rest of Europe and not be sent back to the Middle East. And that's the question. How do you know when someone just says they believe differently? And the reality is you, you don't. It, it, the belief has implications for life and it takes time to know whether any of us really believes what we say we believe. But for Paul, that was an extra component because his previous reputation was not just one of indifferent to the church, not just didn't care. Everyone knew him as the person who was hostile. But now that he believes in Jesus and he believes that Jesus has secured this peace for him, he, just like all of us, also needs relationships with other people. <laughs> and if he's told, hey, you can, you can believe in Jesus, but you're not welcome here, Man, that's, that's going to make life really complicated for him because he's no longer welcome where he used to be. The people that have not converted and are still hostile and still angry and still going after the church, he's definitely not allowed back there. And so will the church receive him? Will they embrace him? Over time, they do. Because over time, his testimony proved true. That he now was making sacrifice after sacrifice to show that he was sincere in his conversion that he could be trusted, that if he came into the church, he was not now going to rat on the church so that they could get in more trouble. And over time, he experienced what it was like to be embraced by someone else. And I don't know if you've ever had that in your own life where you know you're the outsider, you know you're the one not welcome, and you're not welcome because of decisions you've made. You know what you're actually guilty of. You know what you've violated in terms of family history or tradition. And when you've experienced that, to know how what seems like just a little thing, a little thing, like someone giving you a hug, means everything. Because it's just this small thing that says, you do welcome me back. I am allowed here now. And Paul experienced the sweetness of that. That he could participate in fellowship and he could share the testimonies of other people that he helped convert to Christ and they could hear all that and say, clearly God has done this because you weren't seeking this, you didn't want this, God has done this in your life and we can't deny what God has done and he's converted you, he's changed you. And so yes, we want you to experience the peace in relationships with brothers and sisters that Jesus secured by dying on the cross. But that also gave Paul a unique perspective when it came to then how people would use isolation or separation to punish other people. And so what he tells us in chapter 2, if your Bibles are still open, uh, I will just point you to the heading where he says Paul opposes Peter in, at the top of verse 11. So this was peace that he experienced in the church Well, actually, let's go ahead and read it. Let's start in verse 9, and then we'll read through verse 14. 
So we'll go from hearing the description of what he experienced and then seeing it undermined. So verse 9 of chapter 2. This is Paul's testimony. And when James and Cephas, who's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So that's him talking about all the people who finally let him in. And then he says this. But when that very same Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's where we'll stop. So Paul is saying these very same people who welcomed him in so that he could experience the truth, then when they were in this other city called Antioch, Peter was associating with other people, making them feel included, And then some other folks came, and then Peter stepped away and made it clear to everyone who was witnessing that, you know what, I'm kind of with these guys, and I'm not sure if these guys are totally okay. And he was undermining the very peace that the gospel is supposed to bring between Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female, that Paul talks about in the third chapter of Galatians. And so Paul who needed Peter's affirmation to be experienced in the church, then had to confront the very person who welcomed him and gave him the right hand of fellowship. Well, that gets complicated. (laughs) When you have to confront someone who was the pillar, who brought you into the fold, the person who kind of gave you legitimacy, you probably should never say anything bad or negative to that person. Almost your whole reputation was dependent upon that person vouching for you. But Paul knows that this, this peace that's secured by Jesus and that we're supposed to experience in the church, it only continues and it's only maintained through conflict resolution. This peace doesn't just get into cruise control and continue with no thought or no effort. No, no, no. It's maintained through conflict resolution. And so Paul knew Peter enough to say, I can tell you to your face you're wrong, and I can actually do it in front of everyone. But you know I love you, and I know you love me, and I love you enough to tell you you're wrong. Don't make them feel what I felt for so long. I know what this is like from both sides of the street. I know what it's like to not be, quote, good enough. For people to be suspicious of me. And I know the sweetness of what it means to now feel included. Don't you make someone who is supposed to be included, who's welcome at the table, now feel excluded. Don't do that. 
and they love each other enough to be able to do that. And that's true of all healthy and mature relationships. The more you know someone and the more you love someone, the way your relationship is, is that it's not just constant complimenting of one another. You know, you pat someone's back, they pat your back. It's just a mutual affirmation society. No, no, no. When you know someone and you really love someone and they know you, that means they know everything about you and they know things that are worth complimenting and not complimenting. But they know you enough that they can speak frankly to you. But if your relationships are only with those who only ever praise you, they'll always be superficial. And they never criticize you because they just hope you never criticize them. But when you really know someone and love them, they can tell you things that are truthful about yourself even when they're hard to hear. And conversely, you can do the same. So that's just a good question for us. So I'll start with myself. Am I a person that you would feel comfortable criticizing and still believing that we could be friends? That you could tell me you fundamentally disagree with something I think or believe, and yet you could say that believing that I care about you as a person. It's one of the ways you can evaluate any group in terms of whether the group is healthy or not. Is it possible in that group to disagree with something that is considered fundamental to that group? and still be a part of it. If not, then it's not healthy. Because if in starting to think differently and believe differently, you're then told you're not welcome, and I mean in every way, like you're, you're just blacklisted. No one calls you, no one cares about you, no one wants to know how you're doing. Then that is something that leans in the direction of a cult that only preserves itself by demanding absolute uniformity. And uniformity is not the same as unity, which Paul wants the church to have. Uniformity is where we all just agree. We're all going to dress the same way. We're going to talk the same way. We're going to drive the same things. No one's allowed to be different. But what that means is we'll all get along because no one will be different. But it's not sustainable. Never has been. The unity that is desired in the body of Christ is, hey, there are Jews here, and there are Gentiles here, there are men here, there are women here, there are slaves, there are free. We can be one in Christ. We can be united even though there's a million things that are different about us. But that requires relationship. That requires getting to know each other. And we live increasingly in a society where we have the opportunity to speak things to one another without knowing each other. And so you can just send something off on a tweet or a Facebook post that's very personal, but you're saying it to people that don't know you as a person. But when you know someone as a person, you can say all kinds of things you get away with. So someone who I've come to know now over several months, over a year, last week, just jokingly, in a lighthearted way, was like, hey, I like your glasses. They make you look intelligent. (laughs) And I said, and I'm pretty sure you don't mean that the way you just said that. (laughs) But I knew the person and said, I need all the help I can to look smarter. But yes, we know each other that I don't think you said I was looking non-intelligent before. But when you're talking to people you don't know and you never run into again, you can say all kinds of things with no accountability and no sense of how they affect the other person. When you're looking at them in the face and you can gauge their reactions, it just totally changes the way you interact with people. 
And so increasingly, it's just a temptation of the digital world and the internet phase. I've said this before. I mean, the comment section on, on most major news websites is like the equivalent of the bathroom stall at the truck stop 30 years ago. It's just where people go to say the things they would never be caught saying if they were looking at someone directly and saw how it affected them. So when you're looking at someone, you can say hard things to them if they can see I mean, they're not like super angry at me. They're not getting increasingly frustrated. I'm not loving what I'm hearing right now. But they love me. They care about me. And through relationship, I I understand what's going on. And I can understand where they're coming from. Paul had to confront Peter. There had to be a resolution to the conflict. So one of the things that Satan uses to substitute this idea of peace is this pacifism that, you know, you know, to be healthy is no one talks about anything they disagree with, no one ever complains, no one ever confronts things. And that means the church is going well. Or that means the family is healthy. But a family is not healthy, and a church family is not healthy if people do not feel the freedom to speak their minds, to challenge one another at times, and to do it in such a way that through relationship with one another, they the challenge is actually coming out because they genuinely love each other and they care about each other and they need to be able to speak truth to one another. Otherwise, no one grows. No one matures. No one develops. Because if there's nothing wrong with me, then there's no room for improvement. (laughs) But if there is plenty of room for improvement, that improvement only is going to happen in as much as people who love me and love you are willing to enter that journey with each other. And say, you know, I don't want to say a bunch of things to people I don't know and they don't know me. I have no idea what I meant by that. There's times for that and there's opportunities and God can use that. But more often than not, in the long journey of what it means to grow as a Christian, it happens through people that we know who know us and who are willing to speak the truth in love. And never avoid conflict, but seek to resolve conflict. But here's again one of the temptations of our day is you have to first believe that that's a really good thing because most of us can just self-select out of accountability. What I mean by that is, if anyone confronts you here, next week you can go somewhere else. And there's not a single thing anyone can do to make you come back. Most of us have internally the freedom of movement and travel that if someone starts to say something we don't like, we can just move on. And more often than not, many of us choose to do that. We can afford to avoid resolving conflict. It's one of the sad stories, even in our nation's history, that when there was a direct attempt on the part of our legislatures to desegregate schools, that so many private schools popped up in response to forced desegregation because people could financially afford to maintain their segregation. And they were starting Christian schools. That's not the story of every Christian school that started. But it's of enough of a phenomenon that you can go study it. And the inner cities of most of the South, still 60 years later, real, or just suffer from that reality. Because we don't have to get along if we don't want to. There's enough geographic space in America. It's one of the reasons we're a relatively peaceful country. 
as I'm continuing to read different history books on the Balkans, just part of the dynamic is limited space. You got water here, water here, water here, and mountains. So there's not a lot of room to get away from people. Still today, do you know that 80% of the land west of the Mississippi is undeveloped land? It's owned by the government or some park system? And that's 80% still west of the Mississippi is undeveloped, which means, again, if you're not getting along with someone, you can go start a new development. And you can find your new neighbors that now you do get along with. And then when a neighbor comes, you can go start a new development and do something. There's enough space that we've been relatively able to mediate our differences by getting away from each other. That's not the vision of biblical peace. To avoid conflict and avoid the people we don't like. But to seek proactive resolution. Because there are so many problems in our society that you don't need a degree in sociology or even history to say if this continues for the next 20 years this is going to become toxic and explosive this is not sustainable and so will those 20 to 30 years leading up to that be 20 to 30 years of effort at communication at listening at resolution for me it was great to spend at uh, an event was hosted at the House of the Lord two weeks ago, Race, Religion, and Politics. And they brought four speakers together to talk about everything you're not supposed to talk about in public. <laughs> race, Religion, and Politics. And there was about 100 of us gathered together. And you knew listening into it that it was such an amazing and unique conversation and there wasn't going to be a single media person present to report on it. Because we also have a, a business industry that is called the media industry that doesn't make a lot of money off of reporting good stories. They, they get people to read more things by talking about the conflicts that exist and the things that go on. And then this week, we hosted all of the, the area Young Life leaders, had a, had a meeting here. And there's a whole map that they put up with the state of Ohio and every school system that they're thinking about and praying about and all this stuff. And I'm seeing uh, 50 people talking for an entire day about problem-solving, real things going on. And same thing. Man, this is so cool. And no one's going to report on this. <laughs> but this is proactive conflict resolution. This is trying to think decades in advance of trends that are going on and saying, how can we, as the body of Christ, be an alternative voice and a different example of how peace is established and what peace really means? But it is the reality in any conflict that we look at. If we only think about winning the war and don't think about what it means to sustain the peace, then we'll look back continually on the wars we fought and wonder why we ever fought them in the first place. Because it is just as hard, if not harder, to sustain the peace afterwards between people who were just at war with one another than it is to win the war. We understood that in our own country in a civil war and a president in the North who knew, look, when we win, there's no winning that means everyone's gone. So we have to figure out how to win and then work together again. And that's true in almost every conflict in the world. There is no victory that ultimately forever gets rid of a certain group of people. It just doesn't happen. And so even in the conflict, even in the things we find worth fighting for, and there are many things worth fighting for, we have to fight for peace. <laughs> we have to work really, really hard to sustain peace so that things do not become toxic or Explosive, And Paul knows this. Why? 
because Paul used to be a terrorist. Paul never forgot where he came from. He's passionate about this because he knows where it leads when you just avoid things again and again. And when you think the only way to deal with it is through violence. That's Paul's story until he confronted Christ. And then he spent the rest of his life working as hard as he could to bring resolution by confronting things, but doing it proactively so that when the confrontation happened, it wasn't violent. It wasn't explosive. It was people who knew each other, knew each other's stories, knew each other's histories, and could talk openly with one another. And then lastly, this is a piece that has to be centered on Jesus Christ. And so go to the end of Galatians chapter We'll read it from verse 14 to the end. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 14. So Paul's summarizing this whole letter. He's writing this letter because the church is not at peace. And he's heartbroken over that. And he knows that real peace requires everyone involved. And he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So Paul knows that this peace is conditional. He says, for everyone who's trying to live this way and walk by this rule, peace be upon you. This isn't really any more complicated than like recess in elementary school, okay? If someone comes up to you and says, I want to be your friend, but to be your friend, you're not allowed to be friends with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And another person comes up and says, I want to be your friend because I want to be your friend. I'm not trying to control you or make you do anything. I just want to be your friend. If you give in to the person who only thinks of his friendship as their way to control you and then do what you want, One, you'll have a lot less friends, and even that person can't be your friend because they have no idea what a friend is. And Paul's trying to get them to see that. They've got these people coming in saying, this is how it has to be, and if you do it this way, this is the pure way to do it. And he knows that they don't actually care about them, so that even if they give in to every demand, they still won't be happy, but they'll have sacrificed a lot of meaningful friendships along the way. And he says, instead, choose to be friends, choose to embrace and have peace with those who want peace. And for the ones who just can't handle that and they continue to stand on the outside of that, pray for them. Pray for them to be humble and pray for them to desire this kind of reality. But you can't give in to their fleshly desire because they're not happy with themselves. They won't be happy with you even if you give them everything. And so genuinely love people do it for the right reasons love people who love you back love people who care for you for you and you'll find your life richer and fuller you'll find the church healthier and better and people will listen in to some of the conversations you have with each other and say you guys get along we absolutely get along we get along well enough to talk like this let's pray heavenly father we do long for and desire the peace that you have secured to be experienced among us But we confess we're human and none of us like criticism. None of us like disappointing others. None of us like difficult conversations. And so we're always tempted to run from it. We're tempted just to ignore it or to avoid it. But 
Father, we pray that you would help us to be mature enough to see that that's a dead-end street, that there, there aren't enough new people in this world and there aren't enough new places to ultimately find the greener grass somewhere else, but that we need one another and we need to know one another in meaningful ways and to love each other in healthy ways. So, Father, we pray that this love that you want to bring out in us and this joy and this peace and this patience and goodness and kindness and self-control would be fruit that we would not think of as secondary or optional, but absolutely essential to the life that you're calling us to live and to the testimony that you want us to be to the outside world. And so we pray that you would accomplish that uh, in the ways that only you can. In your son's name we pray. Amen.